So uh, today we are continuing with lesson two of our series on <clears throat> men and women in the church. And last week we looked at the uh, found foundational passages out of Genesis 1 and 2. And uh, the importance of correctly understanding those passages cannot be overstated. Because if we get the foundations wrong, everything else uh, is wrong as well. <clears throat> now today... Uh, we're going to look at the entire Old Testament and what the four Gospels have to say about this topic. So around 85% of the Bible, I think, maybe a little more than that even. <laughs> uh, but, so let's pray that we can get through this. Uh, dear Lord, we, uh, we thank you for uh, your word. Uh, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, that you have revealed ourselves to us as well. Uh, we pray that you give us wisdom as we look at this topic of men and women and their roles in the church. I pray that you would bless us and keep me from error. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Now, when we talk about biblical manhood and womanhood in the Bible, we need to distinguish some things. We need to distinguish between uh, prescriptions, principles, and patterns. We need to get these right. Uh, prescriptions are both positive and negative. So do this thing or don't do this thing. What is the most famous list of prescriptions in the Bible? Ten Commandments. Yeah, Ten Commandments. And so these provide the clearest, most obvious boundaries for male and female dress, behavior, attitude, responsibilities, and roles. Most of these are found, like we said, they're found in the Ten Commandments, but also in Paul's letters. Then we have principles. These are uh, fundamental truths about what men and women are like and what they were created to be. And these are found scattered throughout the Bible. Then we have patterns, and patterns is really what we're going to be looking at today. And the Bible reveals to us patterns for men and women in their interaction with each other. What we need to be careful of here is that we don't make prescriptions out of patterns in haste. Right? We may see something that looks like a pattern, and then we turn it into a command unnecessarily. However, we also should realize that when we do see patterns in the Bible over and over again, then these are actually prescriptions. We, we can make a rule out of these things. And these patterns, uh, as we're going to see today, are mostly in the Old Testament. Now, all of this is to say is that while the Bible doesn't give us explicit instructions concerning all things to do with men and women, it does reveal a great deal about when men and women in general, and these patterns that we see ought to reflect the way we think about gender roles in the church. So let's look at five patterns that we see in the Old Testament. The first pattern we see is that only men exercising official leadership. It can't be denied when you look through the Bible that men from start to finish in the Bible are the people who God chose to lead his people. This starts with the patriarchs. We have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were the first patriarchs. And the Old Testament doesn't really emphasize the, uh, their role as a ruler so much as their role as the provider and the protector for their families. That was what they were to do. And uh, this, this word that we use, patriarchy, 
is really not a, uh, it's not a popular word these days. It's not, uh, it's not a nice word to say. But patriarchy is a biblical idea. And it's not something that we should surrender to people who would use it as a pejorative. I think when we rightly understand what a patriarchy is, we see biblically that it is a good thing. And it, it is something that uh, we can talk about in a, in a good way. So we start with the patriarchs. After the patriarchs, we had the leaders of the Exodus and the conquest of the Promised Land. These were Moses, Aaron, and Joshua. All of those people were men, in case you were wondering. Under these leaders, the, uh, the worship of Israel was established, and the polity of Israel was also established. And almost all of these leaders were also men. So your priests and Levites, these were all men. Almost every judge was a man. Deborah was the lone uh, woman, and we'll talk about her in a moment. All of the monarchs were men with one exception, and this is not a good exception. We'll talk about her as well. Uh, the most important public prophets were all men. So we're thinking about Elisha, Elijah, the ones that we read a lot about in the Bible, the ones we know a lot about, Isaiah, Jeremiah. All of the written prophets are men. And everyone who rightfully occupied a governing office in Israel were also men. So what about the exceptions? Well, we have Deborah, who was a judge, and you can read about her in Judges 4 and 5. And really what, what is interesting about her is that she didn't really lead anything. She didn't, she didn't seem to have like a military authority. Uh, really what she did was she helped uh, Barak. I always want to say Barak now when I read that, but Barak, I think, is how you say it. Um, really what she did was she came alongside Barak and was like, hey, God told you what you're supposed to do, so go do it. She didn't say, hey, you're a coward. I'm going to go ahead and take charge of the military and go do what, what's supposed to be done. She really came alongside him and helped him, and we're going, to, we're going to see more about that. And these judges were really national deliverers. They, they didn't have a lot of authority uh, or official authority, but they, they helped the nation in, in times of crisis. There were a number of women who prophesied in the Old Testament as well. Uh, Deborah was one, Miriam, and Huldah was the other one. Uh, they didn't really possess institutional authority as prophetesses. We don't really know a whole lot about them. Uh, we don't have books written by them. We don't have long narratives about them. And they didn't really have the same kind of public ministry as their male counterparts like Elijah and Elisha. Esther is another exception that might be brought up. Uh, she was a queen. She was not a monarch in Israel. And, uh, she, but she did help Israel uh, greatly uh, in uh, Persia, I believe, right? Persia. Uh, Athalia is another exception that might be brought up to this. this Athaliah? I just read it wrong. Yeah, Athaliah. Okay. Athaliah. Athaliah, uh, she did sit on the throne of Israel for a time, so she would be the one female monarch. You can read about her in 2 Kings 11. But uh, there were some things that, about her that weren't great. Like, for instance, she assassinated the royal heirs so that she could take the throne. So not really a good example. Uh, when Joash rose to power, and he took over the throne. He had her deposed and put to death, so also not a great example. And then, uh, really, her reign was an embarrassment to Israel. It was not a blessing to Israel. 
And there, there's a passage in Isaiah, Isaiah 3.12 talks about this. Uh, as, it says, as for my people, children are their oppressors and women rule over them. Oh, my people, those who lead you cause you to err and destroy the way of your paths. So having women in leadership in Israel, Isaiah says, this is not a healthy thing. This is not a good thing. And really, when we look at all these leaders, with these few exceptions, they were all men. That's, that's the way that God ordained it to be. The second pattern we see is godly women displaying a wide range of heroic characteristics. And this maybe is something that we don't celebrate enough. Male leadership doesn't mean women are passive or that they're unimportant or that they don't play an important role. The Old Testament is full of heroic women who had a profound impact on history. Here's another name I'm going to butcher. Uh, the daughters of Zelophehad stood up for their family's inheritance. Now, I know you're all familiar with this, but I'll go over it anyway. So Zelophehad died. He didn't have any sons. And so the daughters came to Moses and they said, hey, you know, our father died. He didn't have any sons. Uh, we want the inheritance. And so Moses was like, okay, uh, I'm not really sure what to do. So he goes and asks God. And God says, yeah, they should get an inheritance. And as a result of these daughters coming before Moses and doing this, there was a new statue made in Israel. And it's like if the, the father doesn't have a son, then the daughters get the inheritance. But if he didn't have daughters, then the, someone else gets it. So basically, it goes through all these different paths so that it stays in that family. And that's all because of these daughters who went to Moses to get their, their inheritance. Another example is uh, J.L., who drove the spike through Sisera's skull. Uh, a great story, one of my favorites. But, uh, but it, it, this is also because Barak was a coward. Right? So Barak is supposed to attack Sisera's army, and he doesn't want to. He goes to Deborah and says, well, you know, what am I, I going to do here? And she says, you know what you're supposed to do. Go attack his army. But because you're a coward, and Barak says, I don't want to go without you. So she says, okay, I'll go with you, but you're not going to get the glory for killing Sisera. That's going to go to a woman. And so he goes, okay, that's fine. So he attacks, Sisera escapes. He, he finds a tent to go into, Jael's tent. And she's like, yeah, come in here. I'll, I'll keep you safe. And he's like, okay, just if anyone comes in here, tell them no one's in here. There's no men in here. She's like, okay, good. He falls asleep because he's tired, and she drives a peg through his head, and he dies. So she gets the credit for killing Sisera. Uh, there's the, uh, the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings 8 who appeals to the king for her house and her land. Uh, you can read about that. Then there's the Proverbs 31 woman. And this is the one that makes all the women groan, right? Because <laughs> they're like, how, how could I possibly live up to this? But this is, this is a great chapter in the Bible. It's, it's the capstone in the book of Proverbs. And this should be an encouragement to every woman, even, even unmarried women. This is something to, to work toward, uh, probably for, for all women, really. But we look at this and we see, okay, in verse 11, her husband trusts her. In verse 12, she does good to her husband and not harm. In verse 13, she sells wool and flax. In uh, verse 15 and 18, she stays up early, or she gets up early and she stays up late. If you're staying up early, that's probably not a good thing, actually. So, not, 
uh, she maintains a household in verse 27. She buys land and plants a vineyard in, in verse tw- uh, 16. Uh, she makes coverings and clothings in verse 18 and 24. She speaks wisely and teaches kindness in uh, verse 26. She's strong and clothed with dignity in verse 17 and 25. And this is all, this all should be encouragement to women because it means that women are extremely important and they can do a lot of things, probably more than what you're doing, actually. It's actually, it's a very challenging passage as well. Instead of saying, well, I'm I'm never going to be that kind of woman, it should be an encouragement to you women to exercise all of the abilities that God has given to you in every sphere of life that you have authority and ability over. So that's the second pattern uh, displaying heroic characteristics. The third pattern is godly women helping men. Who are the famous, uh, the famous exemplary women in the Old Testament? Can you name a couple? Sarah, yes, I heard Sarah. Rahab. Ruth. Esther. Eve. Deborah. Leah, uh, Rachel, all of these come to mind. Now, all of these women were imperfect, weren't they? But while they were imperfect, just like every man, except for Jesus, every man was also imperfect, but they all exemplified what a good woman could be. And that is that they can be a strong, godly influence on the men who are in their lives. This is extremely important uh, for the husband to have a woman who's a good influence in his life. We know Rahab hid the spies, sent, sent the, the people who were looking for them in a different way. Uh, Sarah was modeled uh, as, as a, a woman who respected her husband, and First uh, Peter talks about that. We, are, we already talked about Deborah. Uh, Ruth convinced Boaz to let her come under his protection. Uh, Scott did a, a couple uh, Sunday school lessons on that. Abigail uh, dealt kindly with David. You remember what Abigail did, or or that that situation? So David's out running away from Saul, like he did often. And he goes, he sends men to Nabal. And Nabal basically sends the the people back with insults for David. You know, it's like, I don't know who this David is. Like, why should I help you? And David gets really mad. And he decides to send an army. It's like 400, 400 men to go kill Nabal and, you know, destroy his life. And Abigail catches wind of this, and she takes it upon herself to send a bunch of supplies, wine, bread, you know, cakes, uh, figs, stuff like that. And she basically saves Nabal from David. Nabal eventually does die because of his foolishness, but Abigail did this and saved many people and actually became David's wife. And you can read all the details of that in 1 Samuel 25. I think we know the story of Esther. She, she risked her life uh, so that her husband would see the real threat to his nation. So men are not the only ones who uh, are important here or who, who, can, who can be of help. These women took chances. You know, they risked their own lives in a lot of ways. They overcame obstacles. They dealt with difficult rulers and circumstances. And sometimes they did this not even as the wife of the man who they were helping, right? So if you're an unmarried woman uh, listening to this, 
that doesn't mean that you also don't have a role. Pattern four is uh, the, the opposite of this, right? Ungodly women influencing men for evil. And also ungodly men. We'll talk about ungodly men who mistreated women. Now, who are the most infamous women in the Old Testament? Like the, the women who we don't name our daughters after them, right? Jezebel, that's the most famous one here at this church. Uh, Delilah, right? What did Delilah do? Delilah tricked Samuel into revealing the secret of his strength. Samson, sorry, Samson. Uh, that's Judges 16. Uh, Michal, is that how you say that? Michal, David's wife, who when David worshipped naked, she was like, put some clothes on, dude. She, she basically rebuked him, and uh, that didn't turn out for her very well. It's really rare to see a, a, a woman in the Bible who became famous without exerting some kind of influence over a man in her life, whether for good or bad. And think about this. Most of the women we know in in the Bible, we know them because they either did really good things or they did really evil things. And they influenced the men around them with those good or evil things. Now, on the flip side, we should also point out, because we're talking about men and women, that some of the women we know because the way they were mistreated by men. So Dinah in Genesis 34, she was abducted and raped. Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 11, we know that story. Tamar in Genesis 38, so she was a widow, and then she was disgraced by her husband's brother, who did not want to provide her with an heir. And then she was promised a, a husband, down the road when he was older and that, that uh, promise was broken and then she tricked Judah into getting her pregnant, she posed as a prostitute so the whole thing was just a mess because she was horribly mistreated then we have another Tamar in 2 Samuel 13, she was raped by her half brother and David didn't do anything about it, he heard about it and he was really angry but he didn't do anything so then Absalom took that uh, situation into his own hands. We have uh, Lot's daughters in Genesis 19. You remember the, the angels uh, showed up, and Lot brought them into his house to, to keep them there for the night. And the men of Sodom came and said, we want those men. They wanted to rape them. And he says, no, take my daughters instead. Like, what a stand-up guy, right? And then, oddly, and I, I had either forgot about this or didn't even know about it, but... The Levite's concubine was like the same situation, right? The Levite's concubine shows up. This is Judges 19. And the, uh, the men of the city, they want to rape her. And he says, okay, go ahead. That's fine. And they kill her. And then as a result of that, as a result of the evil that the Levite did, he cuts her up into 12 pieces, sends it out to the land of Israel. And eventually that leads to a civil war. And the tribe of Benjamin is reduced to about 600 men at that point. So men who abuse and belittle and mistreat women are doing the exact opposite of what God calls them to do. So women, be a godly influence on your man. Men, be protectors and not oppressors of the women in your life. So that's the fourth pattern. The fifth pattern is 
women finding pain and purpose associated with bearing and caring for children. So last week we saw that Eve was given to Adam to help fulfill the mandate to be fruitful and multiply. It's obviously something Adam couldn't do by himself. And we also saw that uh, when Eve sinned and Adam sinned, there was, a, there was the curse given. And the curse given to man was primarily due to his work. The ground will be, will be cursed and you'll have to work hard and weeds and all that kind of stuff. Whereas the curse toward Eve was in childbearing. You're, you'll conceive, you're, you're, uh, it's going to hurt. <laughs> That's what I'm looking for. It's going to hurt to bear children. To be a woman is to be the type of person who can bear and care for children. And it shouldn't surprise us that the pain and purpose of women is often bound up in the bearing of children and the caring for them. We see this time and again in redemptive history. Now, is anybody surprised by this? Right? So if, you, if this is surprising to you, you need to read the Old Testament carefully. Because we see this with, in Genesis 21 with Sarah and Isaac. Right? We see it because Sarah hadn't had a child. And, and so God finally granted that to her when she was very old. We see it with uh, Rebecca and Jacob and Esau. We see it with Rachel and Joseph. We see it with uh, Manoah's wife with Samson, with Hannah and Samuel, with Elizabeth and John the Baptist, even with Mary and Jesus in, in a certain way. You know, it was, it was very, very painful for a woman in the Old Testament to not be able to have a child. That was, in some ways, that was like the, the ultimate curse was to not be able to have children. And when they did have children, it was a great blessing to them and it brought great, great joy to them. On the other hand, we also see that God punishes disobedience by closing the womb. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about this before, but the house of, of Abimelech, when Moses came, Abraham came, and he tells uh, the king that uh, this, is my, this is my sister. So he's like, okay, so he takes her for his wife. Well, evidently they were there for a long time because there were no children born. And it's because God had closed the womb of Abimelech. Now, he, God kept him from knowing her, but there was a curse there because of that disobedience. Now, to be clear, what I'm not saying is that the only important thing a woman can do is have children. Right? Bearing children is not the sole purpose of a woman. When we looked at Proverbs 31. We looked at the influence that women can have over a man for good or bad. Uh, and a woman's worth is not bound up in how many children they have or that she even has children at all. But we have seen in many ways, the many ways in which women serve God apart from bearing children, yet there is a unique and there is a God-given purpose for women in bearing and caring for children. Think about uh, the opening chapters of Exodus. Right? The book of Exodus is about Moses. And what happens at the very beginning of that book? Yeah, right? So what happened? Moses is born. There's this edict that's gone out, right? That the, the, the uh, midwives are supposed to, they're supposed to kill the male children. And the Hebrew midwives save Moses' life, right? So we have two women who basically take their own lives in their hands, and they save Moses against the, the command of Pharaoh, then Moses' mother 
sends them down the river, which, can any of you women imagine doing that? No, I don't think so. I don't think any of you men could imagine. I'm just going to take my baby and send it down the river. Right? No, we wouldn't, we wouldn't want to do that. Uh, Miriam finds a way to, take, to bring him home for a time, and then Pharaoh's daughter raises him as her own child. All of these women who saved Moses, all of these women were women. <laughs> all the people who saved Moses when he was an infant were women. They were not men. Okay, so God uses women in wonderful ways. Any, uh, any questions before we move on? That's, that's the Old Testament. Is that right? I got that through that pretty fast. Okay. Uh, any questions? Yeah, Mother. The five points, what, what are they? Yes, sure. So the first pattern was uh, leadership is uh, men. Men are only in leadership. Uh, the, the second pattern was godly women displaying uh, heroic characteristics. The third was godly women helping men. The fourth was ungodly women not being so helpful to men and ungodly men mistreating women. And then the fifth pattern we saw was women finding pain and purpose associated with bearing and caring for children. All right, so we're moving on to chapter three. So we're going to look at the uh, Gospels. Uh, There's a quote that goes like this. God made us in his own image, and ever since we've returned the favor by making him in ours. Not such a good thing. But but this is true. Many Christians believe that Jesus is just like them. And I've actually heard people say things like, you know, if you you talk about God's sovereignty and uh, things like that, and people say, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. And it's like, well, your Jesus isn't in the Bible, right? <laughs> so that's fine if your Jesus wouldn't do that, but that's a different Jesus. And this is, I know we laugh, but this is actually a serious thing, you know? And this is actually something that came up in, uh, in my, my book group for uh, the book we just went through. You know, it was like, like a lot of our conversations were like, I've been thinking about Jesus the way I am. Like, he's going to treat me the way I, I think about myself or the way that I treat other people. So it, it is kind of funny in a way, but it's also very serious because if we're thinking about Jesus as being like us, then it, game over. Like, like, there's no comfort in that. There's no hope in that. It, it's going to be discouraging. Your, your, uh, your spiritual life is going to be uh, a mess. Thankfully, Jesus is not like us. And he showed that, especially in the way he viewed and treated women. He did not treat them as second-class citizens. He did not put them in their place, so to speak. He didn't exalt them over men. Right? He didn't treat them like they were somehow better than. Uh, he also did not confuse them with men. It'll be helpful. I think it'll be very helpful for us to see how Jesus interacted with women and how, at the same time, he equipped men for leadership. So in Jesus' time, the culture minimized the dignity of women, even to the point of depersonalizing them. But Jesus boldly affirmed their worth 
as people made in the image of God, and he benefited from their ministry to him. He spoke free, freely with them in public. You remember in uh, uh, John 4, when uh, he's talking to the Samaritan woman at the well, and they have this, this very interesting conversation that we can't get into. But the disciples show up, and they're like, why is he talking to a Samaritan woman? Like, this is not something that you do in our culture. And yet Jesus didn't have any problem talking with her. And there's other examples of this as well. Uh, Jesus ministered to the needs of, uh, the needs of women. He ministered to Peter's mother in Mark chapter 1. He, he ministered to the woman who'd been bent over for 18 years in Luke 13. He ministered to the, the bleeding woman in Mark 5. And this, this is an interesting story, too, because there's this woman who she has been bleeding for 12 years. It says that she's been suffering at the hands of many physicians. In fact, if you want to turn to that, let's actually open our Bible. And we'll look a little bit at that passage since we've got time. So Mark 5, verse 25, we'll start there. So I'll read uh, through verse 34. Now a certain woman had a flow, a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. Stop and think about that for a moment, right? Think about like doctors a couple thousand years ago and the primitive methods they would have for dealing with things. I can't imagine that this would be a pleasant experience. Uh, let's go let's continuing. Uh, she had spent all that she had and was no better, but what rather grew worse. So she was poor. She, was, she didn't have any money. She'd spent everything she had and had nothing to show for it. When she'd heard about Jesus, she came behind him in a crowd and touched his garment, for she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. So she demonstrates her faith in Christ by just thinking, okay, if I could just touch his robe, I'm going to be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my clothes? So imagine Jesus in this crowd, people all around him, and he senses that something's happened, and he wants to know who touches him. So the disciples, the disciples say to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see who had, done, who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. So think about this, too. You know, she was afraid. For some reason, she was afraid. And maybe this was a cultural thing, like you weren't supposed to mess with the religious rulers. You know, women were not treated with much dignity. So she goes and does this, and then she's immediately afraid Evidently, she thinks that something bad is going to happen now because of what she's done. But what does Jesus say to her? It says, and he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So it's a really, it's a great story. Uh, it shows the compassion that Jesus had for, for women. Uh, he also showed mercy to the Syrophoenician woman in Mark 7. And uh, he allowed women to minister to him. He welcomed their ministry. In Matthew 26, uh, the anointing of Bethany, the disciples complained that this woman had taken this, this expensive oil and poured it on Jesus' feet 
And he's like, she's done a beautiful thing to me. You know, he had no problem whatsoever. In Luke 7, we see that uh, a sinner, a sinner, anoints his feet, again, anoints his feet with oil. She cries at his feet, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees are standing there indignant. And Jesus had no problem with that at all. He, he also thought that was a wonderful thing. He let women help him financially. Uh, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Susanna, and many others, it says in Luke 8, were there helping Jesus financially. He received their hospitality. We think of that, the famous story of Mary and Martha, where Mary is cooking dinner and stuff, and Martha's all mad and goes to Jesus, and, and he basically tells her to chill out. She's, she's doing a good thing for me. So he, he welcomed the hospitality of women. And he had uh, many women who assisted in his ministry. Uh, again, Mary Magdalene, uh, Joanna, Susanna, uh, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, Salome, uh, Mary and Martha. So women were included in the ministry of Jesus. And normally, well, I think what we think of when we think of Jesus going around and ministering, we think of Jesus and his 12 disciples going around and ministering. But there were lots of people with him and lots of women with him helping him. And what this shows us is that women have enormous value and purpose. We've already seen that today. But Jesus shows us that too. Mary, his mother, was highly favored. He frequently used women as examples in his teaching. Uh, The Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South in Matthew 12, is an example that he used. Uh, the, the widow of Zarephath in Luke 4.26 is mentioned. That was the widow who uh, Elijah was sent to. And she, when Elijah comes to her, she says, Oh, I'm, I'm going to go get some, uh, I'm going to go make some bread, and then me and my son can die. And so Elijah sent to her and saves her life. And Jesus uses her as an example. The woman searching for the lost coin is an example Uh, that Jesus used, the persistent widow as an example of prayer, the the widow's offering, you know, the the poor widow who just had like like a half penny and she gave her last mite and he used her as an example of generosity. He refers to women as the daughters of Abraham and he he elevated their position in... in, uh, in the minds of those around him. They were on the same spiritual plane as men. And his teachings elevated women. Remember, he's teaching in a culture that depersonalized women and treated them like property. On divorced, uh, on the issue of divorce, they're treated as people, not as property. On lust, they're treated as people. He protects them from being treated as objects of sexual desire. On education, he did not hesitate to teach women. And in short, what we see is that Jesus valued women. He honored them. He respected them. He elevated their place in society. He gladly benefited from them. He allowed them, wanted them to minister with and to him. And while Christ's attitude toward women and Christ's attitude in general was a very countercultural, it was in keeping with with what God had designed. He did not have a problem dealing with societal taboos and breaking them, right? He hung out with tax collectors and sinners. He, uh, he ate without washing his hands, something that mothers would just hate. 
uh, he rejected man-made traditions surrounding the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. He, uh, he rebuked the temple worship, the, 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 um, the money grab that it had become, for lack of a better term, right? He condemned the religious leaders of his day, the Pharisees. And he even honored women, even foreign women, which was especially unheard of. And although he went down this list, he broke all these rules, all these taboos, he made a lot of people very angry doing these things, you know, to the point where they killed him, he did not include women in leadership. He was countercultural, but he did not reject the fundamental principles that God had established in Israel when it came to men and women in leadership, and that shows us that that carries on to today. All the leaders in the early church were men. All the apostles were men. When they chose elders and deacons, they chose men. When the apostles needed to choose a replacement for Judas, they chose a man to take his place. And lastly, and we'll end with this, Jesus was a man, right? Just like all the public prophets, all the priests, all the kings in the Old Testament, Jesus came and he was a man. Just like the first Adam, Jesus was a man. As the Messiah, he came to us as a man. As a returning king and judge, he will come as a man. And he embodied for us what it meant for a man to be a man. Someone who saves, who, pro- who protects, who rescues, who leads, who teaches, and who serves. And it makes sense then that Jesus would put men in positions of leadership. He is the most pro-woman person ever. And in being so, he affirmed their role as women, their worth as women, and he affirmed men's role as men and their worth as men as well. Any questions? Really? Okay. Oh. <laughs> it's okay. I didn't watch him so bad. Oh, no, it's fine. <laughs> Um, when you say that he used men only for leadership, you're talking about spiritual? Uh, well, kings in Israel were all men. The priests and Levites were all men. Now, I'm not saying that a woman couldn't be like a CEO of a company or something like that. But, yeah. All right. All right, let's pray. Oh, Andrew, do you have a... Why not? The last comment. So... Why not? Wait, what? What, what, what principle would we say that a woman could hold any position of authority then, based on everything that's been said today? Because all of these examples are spiritual positions, right? Well, the king of Israel, I guess there's a spiritual aspect to it. Yeah. That was also a temple. So. I don't see any reason why a woman couldn't start her own business. Okay. And in fact, in Proverbs 31... She does have her own business. She makes clothing and sells it. She buys property and sells it. So that is a different sphere, and it's perfectly fine for a woman to do that. Any other questions? All right, let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are a good God. Uh, We thank you that uh, we have your word given to us to show us... uh, the roles that we have, uh, the honor that both sexes have in those roles. We thank you, Lord, that you are uh, good to us. We pray that you would be with us the rest of this day. You bless the uh, teaching and worship, and we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.